0: I'm legally speaking on CFAX 1070, joining us as always, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, how are you? I'm doing great. Always good to be here. You know, Michael, I have seen so many folks lately, and I, I I hope I never fall into this category, and if I do, I feel bad about it, who have their law degree from Twitter, it seems, and they are very confident in their understanding of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, of Canada's Constitution, and what it does and does not allow with respect to vaccination mandates. Now, you have helpfully educated us as to what the law actually says on this matter. We talked about the Charter last week. Uh, what about the BC Human Rights Code? I've seen that mentioned as well.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. That seems to have been getting some uh, traction on the uh, lunatic fringe uh, uh, element, uh, arguing for uh, not getting vaccinated. Um, And there's uh, been suggestions that somehow the Human Rights Code is going to uh, uh, provide some legal cover uh, for showing up in uh, bars and restaurants and so on uh, unvaccinated. Um, And there are several reasons why that is very unlikely to get any legal traction. Um, First of all, the Human Rights Code itself, like if you look at the legislation, speaks about uh, a person uh, being denied uh, entry to a uh, facility, uh, but it provides an exception uh, to that, saying that... uh, it could only be in violation of the Human Rights Code if the denial is without bona fide and reasonable justification. Hmm. Uh, And then furthermore, you would have to establish that the uh, refusal to allow somebody into your bar or restaurant uh, was as a result of one of the uh, prohibited reasons why you shouldn't discriminate uh, against people uh, and choosing not to be vaccinated uh, doesn't seem to fit within any of them. Yes. Uh, But There's a a more fundamental uh, issue here, which is that, um, leaving aside uh, how somebody might uh, interpret the particular provisions of the Human Rights Code in British Columbia, it's important to remember that, unlike the Charter, uh, which also seems to have been uh, becoming quite uh, popular with the uh, QAnon set, where I was out at the Saanich Fair on the weekend and there was a Unmasked anti vaxxer who was uh, carrying around a laminated copy like a shield, I think the entire copy of the charter, (laughs) going up to people uh, trying to persuade them of her uh, position. At least it was outside. I guess that's something. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, So, uh, not in a bar or restaurant. but the the uh, charter, of course, is uh, constitutional and uh, laws need to conform with it. Yeah. Uh, however, we, it's important to bear in mind that the Human Rights Code in British Columbia is simply a piece of provincial legislation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not constitutional. Uh, and in British Columbia, there was an act passed. It, it actually came into effect July 8th, 2020. It's called the COVID-19 Related Measures Act. Um, and that act does a number of things. Uh, first of all, it was intended uh, to continue the various ministerial uh, orders that were originally made under the Emergency Program uh, Act. Right? There were all sorts of orders that uh, uh, have been made in order to try to uh, ameliorate um, the risk of uh, COVID. Yes. Uh, that were originally made under that Emergency Program Act, which were continued. Uh, under the COVID-19 Related Measures Act, which is the law of British Columbia. uh, And the uh, Section 2 of the uh, COVID-19 Related Measures Act provides that if there is any conflict between this act, that is to say the COVID-19 Related Measures Act, um, or any regulations made under it, and any other act or regulation in the province, uh, the COVID-19 Related Measures Act trumps. So um, then you have to look at uh, the way that would play out um, is that if you have a ministerial uh, order, which can now be made under this act, that is to say the COVID-19 related measures act, which would prohibit, for example, uh, people going into bars uh, without uh, providing proof that they are vaccinated, the, that requirement uh, which would take the form of a ministerial order under the COVID-19 related measures act trumps the human rights code um, and so uh, that result shouldn't be a surprising one right one of the sort of core functions of government would be to sort of take steps to ensure health and safety of people yes. right uh, and the balancing of how that uh, is to occur and what measures would be appropriate are not decisions that are going to be left to the Human Rights Tribunal. Uh, they are decisions which are going to be made uh, by the provincial government. And so uh, where there is a, a an order made requiring um, proof of vaccination to go to the bar, You are not going to be able to successfully uh, refer to the Human Rights Code and say, oh, yes, somehow I've got some human rights, uh, human right to go to the bar unvaccinated and breathe on people. Uh, That argument is not getting far um, because of that provision that I've just referred to. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, um, the COVID 19 Related Measures Act also has authority to uh, prohibit. uh, claims, legal claims, uh, for damages related to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so if there became a problem of sort of clogging up the system with, you know, uh, uh, complaints uh, that uh, didn't have any uh, merit, for example, because the COVID-19 Related Measures Act trumps the Human Rights Code, uh, there's also provision in the COVID-19 Related Measures Act uh, to simply prescribe uh, Uh, classes of people who are then not subject to uh, legal proceedings uh, claiming damages related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, And so the short of it all uh, is that uh, not only is it incredibly unlikely that there is going to be some constitutionally protected right to go into uh, crowded places and put other people at risk, uh, it is uh, even more unlikely Uh, that uh, somebody is going to succeed with a human rights code uh, complaint uh, that they have the right uh, to go in an unvaccinated state uh, into discretionary places and put other people in jeopardy, Uh, that is going to run headlong into the uh, COVID-19 Related Measures Act uh, and is exceedingly unlikely to get traction. Uh, And so uh, people would be well advised uh, not to be uh, relying on the Twitter or Facebook uh, advice about uh, what somebody uh, might or might not be uh, permitted to do, that just is most unlikely to get uh, any real uh, legal traction. And so uh, don't get your uh, legal advice from a QAnon shaman uh, or some person on Twitter.
0: You know, I I can't help but wonder what it must be like to have the knowledge of yourself, a member of the bar, a member of legal profession or even a member of the judiciary, because obviously everybody goes on social media. I would assume much of it is reviewed, even if posting is not done. But I can just imagine how ridiculous it must be to, like, see some of these interpretations that are sort of taken as fact. And of course, it's completely bizarre and wrong, but no one really seems to do anything about it because it's not actually before a court. I wonder what that's like.
1: Well, you know, I think it's sort of what what I see going on with, uh, you know, the woman carrying around the laminated copy of the charter or people posting things about how the human rights code is going to get them into the uh, bar next weekend or whatever yeah. it might be. It's sort of like the uh, conspiracy, other yeah. conspiracy theories where there's some, grain of something right you can find some word or language out of context uh and then say hey look it's right here look look it's in the human rights code and if you don't read the whole thing and the preamble to it and you're unfamiliar with all the other legislation or the cases that interpret it, yeah. it you might be able to make some argument about something or other uh and so then off it goes on twitter or facebook and then that gets pointed to as why you've got the right somehow not to wear uh uh, mask inside or why you don't need to get vaccinated and it produces people wandering around with laminated copies of the charter uh, and so it's just you, you need to have a bigger picture it's not enough to sort of find some wording somewhere uh, that seems to conform with whatever um, theory you've uh, you're espousing and uh, somehow arguing that that's going to be the uh, legal results. You need to look at other legislation. You need to look at how courts have interpreted things in the past. It's not a completely fresh exercise. You don't get to uh, just find some isolated piece of legislation with some language you like uh, and argue that uh, that is going to support your uh, support your position.
0: All right, let's take our break. Legally speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, continues right after this. And it's Michael Mulligan with Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. Michael, uh, do we have anything else to add to the COVID issue before we move on to the Cowichan Valley Regional District uh, matter?
1: No, I think that's about it. Uh, Just, uh, you know, maybe uh, focus your legal research on uh, Canley rather than Twitter uh, if you're trying to uh, figure out uh, what may or may not be uh, legally permitted. Absolutely. Good advice.
0: So what's exactly happening up in the Cowichan Valley Regional District? I'm reading here it's an attempt to entirely prohibit development in an area on the shoreline of Lake Cowichan and whether or not it's reasonable. Indeed.
1: And I must say, this case that just came out focuses on uh, that issue, but there's a broader um, issue at play here, which we've seen debated in the context of the uh, current federal election, uh, where the parties are at uh, all, I think all of them, uh, are talking about uh shortage of housing, right? And yes. uh, how that can be a problem and housing's becoming very expensive and how we need to build more uh, houses for people. Um, I think that's uh, common in many parts of the country. Um, and this case, uh, I think, demonstrates why Uh, Even though there may be uh, agreement uh, at the national or provincial level that we need more houses built, uh, one of the reasons why we don't see more houses built is that there's been a decision to delegate to local governments the authority to approve particular houses being built. Yes, Um, And while most people or many people would agree, hey, we need more houses for people, if you ask the question, should that new house be built near your house? <laughs> Often the response to that is, oh, no, <laughs> anywhere else really, except, of course, next to my house. Um, and so the the bigger policy question I think that this case might demonstrate is, you know, whether we need to rethink, you know, how local those kind of decisions should be. Because you can wind up with decisions like what we saw, uh, what we see in the case that I'm about to talk about. Hmm. Uh, and. The particular case, it comes out of the uh, uh, Cowichan Valley Regional District, uh, and it was a couple uh, who purchased a a half-acre property on Lake Cowichan uh, that had an old cabin on it, and uh, they wanted to build a new house on Lake Cowichan. Uh, And in order to do that, they needed to make an application to the Cowichan Valley Regional District for permission to build the new house. Uh, And They ran into trouble uh, because uh, essentially the bylaws uh, of the Cowichan Valley Regional District provided that absolutely no (laughs) new building may occur uh, in the area that they wish to uh, build their new home. Uh, And uh, that, uh, as a result of that, the Cowichan Valley Regional District told them, no, (laughs) you can't build your new home. And they relied upon provisions of the local government act and another act called the riparian areas protection act Mm -hmm. Uh, the the latter is designed to protect you know lakes and streams and that kind of thing and the language in that act provides that there can be uh, prohibitions on development which would be quote harmful alterations disruption or destruction of natural features conditions that support fish and the riparian assessment area right so there's legislation that does allow for there to be uh, restrictions on things that might be harmful. Uh, but the way the uh, regional district had applied that principle was to essentially say absolutely nothing can be built uh, in that area. And so the couple was told no. Um, and uh, they uh, conducted a judicial review of that decision made by the uh, the board of the Cowichan Valley Regional District. Um, and so a judge had to determine whether Uh, the district's decision to say no, premised on a bylaw that simply said absolutely not, uh, was reasonable. Um, And the judge concluded that the decision was not reasonable. Uh, And the reason that the judge applied, he found it wasn't reasonable because the board had exercised its discretion to say no, based on this uh, bylaw that essentially said no ever. Um, And The judge concluded that those provisions in the provincial legislation that allowed for uh, there to be restrictions on development that would be essentially harmful or disruptive to, you know, fish life and so on, does not mean uh, that you can simply pass a bylaw that says, you know, uh, banana, don't build anything anywhere near anything. Yes. And so the result of this is that the couple will be allowed to build their uh, home. There wasn't any, they had uh, done environmental assessments. It was clear that they had met every sort of uh, step you might uh, take in order to ensure that the lake was kept safe. And in fact, doing things that might improve matters like, you know, moving the old hundred year old rock septic field, which was right next to the lake, modernizing it and putting it in an appropriate place. And so it was clear that there wasn't an actual risk to the uh, environment or the lake or the fish or any of those things. Uh, and so uh, for that reason, the decision to simply give a blanket no uh, was uh, overturned. Uh, and in- indeed, the the uh, judge granted uh, what's called uh, an order in form of mandamus, which was also an argument in that case. Mm-hmm. Often what happens when there's an administrative decision that a judge finds to be unreasonable, Uh oftentimes what happens is the judge would say, this decision was unreasonable, and here's why it was unreasonable. And then often the judge would send it back to the um, statutory decision maker, right, the board, and say, try again. I've told you why what you did here wasn't appropriate. Give it another go. Uh Uh, But here the judge concluded that based on What could be restricted right which were things that would you know be damaging to the environment basically or fish or the lake that kind of thing yes there was no suggestion that what was being proposed here uh, would have that effect and so for that reason the judge concluded that the board would have no choice but to approve the application to allow the couple to build the new house Uh, and so the judge granted uh, an order in the form of mandamus, which essentially said, you can go ahead, you don't need to go back and ask the board again uh, to reconsider what they did, you can just get going and build your home. Uh, and so there is some, I think, important takeaway for local governments in terms of how they uh, approach um, these kinds of development uh, decisions, right? They, they can't simply uh, respond to the The fact that they've got some legislative, delegated legislative authority to to prevent harm by simply saying nothing can be done here. And uh, I do think it raises the question about whether we ought to have these kinds of decisions made perhaps a little bit higher up. Hmm. Uh, And by that I mean perhaps by at a provincial or a wider (laughs) regional level. Yes. uh, Because, you know, again, if you're somebody who's the uh, elected official. Uh, who's sort of elected by some small group of people, like, you know, in Victoria, what do we have, 13 municipalities here? Yes, we do. Right? If you ask somebody in some particular municipality, hey, what do you think of the apartment building going in there, right? There's going to be great hue and cry. Well, why don't you pick one of the other 12 to put it in? Um, Whereas if you were making a decision with a bit of a broader perspective, like, you know, do we need increased uh, housing uh, available in greater Victoria, you may well come to a a different decision uh, than if you are the, you know, elected councillor elected by some, you know, one-thirteenth deciding whether that particular uh, apartment building or house ought to go into your neighbourhood. And so uh, I do think this case uh, may be a reason to reflect upon whether we perhaps have gone too far uh, in uh, delegating uh, authority to restrict uh, development to such a micro local level uh, that uh, we are perhaps missing the big picture, uh, which is that we've got a lot of people that need to be able to afford a a place to live. Yeah. Uh, and if we go too far uh, in, um, you know, uh, uh, following the wishes of the person who doesn't want anything built anywhere next to them, uh, where is it going to be? Some of these things have to go somewhere. Um, And the fact that, you know, this particular case dragged on for, it looks like the original decision telling them, no, you can't build anything, was in 2019. Wow. And so, good for the couple, they eventually got their decision, you know, on the second of this month. Uh, But, you know, a lot of people, that would be completely unaffordable. You know, how many people can say, look, I'm going to spend that much time uh, uh, to eventually go to court to get an order so I can build my house uh, and so all of this kind of thing just uh, really does add to the uh, the cost of building affordable houses. We have two and a half
0: minutes left, and there's still one story yet to discuss. Do you think we can get through it?
1: I think so. All right. It's on it. the same theme, I think, yeah. as the one I just talked about. Uh, there was another decision which came out the day after the one I just talked about, uh, and this as well was a judicial review. In this case, a decision uh, made by the Agricultural Land Commission. Uh, And it was a case of uh, an elderly person who owned a a large farm that wished to have the farm uh, divided into two parts so that her two sons could continue farming uh, uh, the property, live there and and carry on farming. Uh, And her application uh, was denied uh, by the Agricultural Land Commission telling her, no, you can't uh, divide the farm into two so the two sons can keep farming it. Uh, but when they uh, did so, they provided no real analysis of how they came to the conclusion that the farm had to remain at that larger size uh, to further the uh, you know desire to have the land continue to be used as farmland. Uh, and so uh, that ultimately was overturned in court on the basis that the agricultural land commission uh, failed to provide. Reasons for how it came to the conclusion uh, that uh, dividing this uh, uh, farm into two uh, parts so that the family could continue farming it uh, would interfere with the uh, objective of uh, uh, encouraging farming activity. Uh, but it, it there is certainly some connection between this decision and the one I've just referred to yes. in that it's another example of the administrative burdens people need to go through to, in this case, build a house for the other son so that they could keep... Uh, farming the property. So we need to keep our uh, eye on the big picture, uh, I think, to ensure that people are able to uh, afford places
0: to live. Legally speaking on CFAX 1070, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defence Lawyers. A pleasure as always. Until next week. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. All right. Talk to you then. Bye now.